0: Now, let me tell you something about Joel and fasting. I do not like fasting. Um, and, I, you know, I would like, you know, fast from TV for a day or so, you know, but, but when it came to food, I was like, no, I can't, I can't fast food. And, uh, I felt like he started telling me to fast and, you know, I, throughout my life, I had struggled with that. When we, were in, when we were in high school, we had these things called the 30-hour famine. Do you guys remember those? Where you like your youth group would not eat for thirty hours to stand in solidarity with the, the starving, and um, I would usually ditch the youth group about halfway through and go get a McDonald's because I just I couldn't I couldn't do it. I always joke I'd say you know if, I would set out to do like a if I set out to do a three day fast and could only get through a day and a half of it, does that make me a half fast Christian? Half fast, half <laughs> fast Christian. <clears throat> Guys, get your head out of the gutter. Half fast Christian. So (laughs) that's all you're going to remember from tonight. (laughs) So I started doing it though. I started fasting on Fridays and uh, it was the weirdest, you know, it was just as bad as I expected it to be. And I was hungry, I'd get a headache and I was grouchy and uh, but, but I did it one week, and I was like, okay, I made it through a week, and I, so it came Friday again, because early Christians used to fast on Fridays, right? So I started doing it on Fridays, and I, I came to discover that on Thursday nights, my body was like, yes, I don't have to eat tomorrow. It's like, this is the weirdest thing. So slowly but surely, I came to really look forward to the fasting on Fridays. Well, then I was like, I read somewhere else that Christians used to fast on Wednesday and Friday, so I was like, well... Let's throw Wednesday in there. So I started fasting on Wednesday and Friday, and a couple of things happened. <clears throat> First of all, I started to get some real clarity from the Lord on some stuff. Wasn't the stuff I necessarily wanted to do, but I knew what he wanted me to do, right? Got some clarity from the Lord. He opened some amazing doors. And, but then <clears throat> what started to happen is when I moved to San Antonio, San Antonio has all these cedar trees, and I discovered I have a horrible allergy to cedar. So like every year from about December to February, I would have, I'd be in bed sick with upper respiratory stuff because these, these cedar allergies would just turn into horrible sickness. Well, when I started fasting, I, I realized one, it was about January, I was like, wait, I haven't been sick from cedar. And I started looking at it, and cedar was high, like the cedar pollen level was really high, but I wasn't getting sick. And so I was like, wow, this is crazy. I, I, I think the fasting is curing my allergies. And so I talked to a doctor about it, and she's like, oh yeah, she said, your body is meant to handle a certain number of, of um, stressors, right? And she said, but when you're, when you're not having to process food, your body can fight other stuff. So they're actually using fasting to, like, cure cancer and stuff nowadays. It's interesting. You know, God's, everything God asks of us has a reason for it. And they've shown over and over again, and we're going to get into why in just a second, that fasting just has this powerful effect of... of when. Your body can handle a certain number of toxins, right? We're made to handle some toxins. And when you're fasting, you're giving your body time to lower your toxin load. Your body can attack those things. But what happens most of the time is because we're constantly eating, um, we, we don't have any room for when, when our toxin load tips over, like you eat something you shouldn't have eaten or you just get sick. Your body doesn't have the energy it needs to fight it because you're constantly processing food. But there's this crazy thing that whenever you've been fasting, it actually strengthens your body. In fact, the number one, like they've done longitudinal studies on health. What they found is it's actually diminished caloric intake that is what is the consistent factor in long life. And people say, well, it's the Mediterranean diet. You know, the Mediterranean diet is what makes people live long. But if you look at the Mediterranean diet, somebody pointed out once, uh, the Mediterranean cultures, they're orthodox. And they have like 100 fasting days a year in their spiritual calendar. So a lot of people point out, they're like, yeah, it's good what they eat in the Mediterranean diet. Like that Greek thing we ate tonight, really good for you. But uh, what really makes the difference is they eat about a third less food than us. And that is why they have such a long life. And I started realizing, man, you know, I didn't know when I got into fasting that this was going to have a health effect on me. I just did it because I felt like the Lord was telling me to do it. And I've learned if he asks you to do something, you just do it. But it was when I fully committed to it, I started to realize, like, there were some benefits to it. And there comes a point in our journey when we've had the turning point happen, when we've had the courage, when we've heard the Holy Spirit telling us what we need to do, that we have to decide that we're going to fully engage in the season we're in. We have to fully commit to the path ahead. Uh, My dad compares it to to Tarzan swinging through the jungle. When he's on a vine swinging through the jungle, and he goes to another vine to catch it to keep his forward movement, he has to let go of the vine that's tried and true and grab onto a vine that he's not certain is gonna hold him yet, but to keep the forward movement, he has to let go over here and grab onto the other vine. Otherwise, if you hang onto both, you'd just be dangling like a fool in the jungle. And there comes a moment in the journey where you have to fully commit to the path. And, and when you do... It's amazing that you'll see over and over again that God brings, there's Psalm, I think it's 103 says, forget not all of his benefits. And yeah, there's sacrifice that comes with the serving the Lord, but there are also tremendous benefits that come to going all in to the commitment to serve the Lord. There's a story, uh, if you pop up that verse where it says that Jesus was, you know, talking to disciples as he was living on the earth, and there's one point where he calls uh, to some, a guy says, hey, Jesus, I want to follow I want to follow you. Do you have the, the verse up there? I want to read it exactly. The one where he says, uh, it should be right after this slide. Do, 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 do. Nope. Next one. Nope. There it is. Yep. It says that they were going, going along the road. Someone said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Seems like a reasonable request, like bury your father. And here's what Jesus says, sweet, loving Jesus. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. How's that for a Hallmark card, right? Sweet things we never put on Hallmark cards that Jesus said, right? He said, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I'll follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home and Jesus said, nope, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't seem to have a lot of tolerance for half-fast Christianity. He seems to say, if you want the benefits, you got to go all in. And I think there comes a point where we look at going all in and we have to, and we start to realize, like, I want to go all in, but man, we start to look at what it means. We say, if I do this, that'll mean That. Man, if I go all in on this marriage, and I don't have a backup plan with that girl from high school, like, what if this lady, what what if this one ditches me like the last one did? And then I'm stuck. And you say, C.S. Lewis said it this way. He says, we're not necessarily doubting, put up that quote right before this one. He says, we're not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We're wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. Isn't that the case? When you start to look at the cost of total commitment to something, you go, but if I do that, I'll have to give up this. I had a guy tell me one time, he said, man, he said, it was so much easier before I was a Christian. I would just take advantage of people and didn't feel any guilt. He's like, now when I take advantage of them, I feel horrible about it. I'm like, yeah, that's what it takes. And a lot of people have just enough Jesus to make them miserable. They dip their toe in, they show up on church, but they, they don't go all into this commitment to serve him, and they don't get the benefits of going all in. But the benefits only come when you go all in and say, I'm going to be present right now in this season, no matter what it takes. I'm going to follow the Lord, and I'm going to commit to whatever it takes. But here's the good news about it, what I've found over and over again. When you commit to the path, the way will open to you. Faith You know, you don't need faith when it's sunshine and unicorns floating through the sky, the path is clear. That that doesn't take any faith. You need faith when it gets really, really dark and you don't know the next step ahead. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those who seek him. And a lot of times we, we, we say we're living by faith, but really we've got our life all planned out. And eventually a turning point comes and messes that up. But at some point you have to decide, I'm gonna commit to this even though I don't know what it's gonna cost me. And it looks like on the surface it's gonna cost me a lot. But I'm convinced that you can't sacrifice for God. He won't let you. As soon as you think you've sacrificed for him, he's like, hey, watch this. And he'll like blow you away with blessings. But you don't get to see those blessings until you fully commit. And I think that's why Jesus was so hard on those people. He knew there was gonna come a time when it was going to be really challenging for them. And they had to go all in. So I lead these trips, uh, hikes all over the world. And uh, there's one, I, one trip I lead in, in Israel. And I got so frustrated when I started doing these trips to Israel because I would get these emails from people. And they would say, hey, I want to go to Israel with you, but is it safe? And I would tell them this, I would say, listen, life is inherently dangerous and you're going to have to be alive to be on this trip. So there's an element of danger involved. And you've got to just commit to going all in. And then I have them sign a waiver, right? Like, you got to go all in. But so many people, they say, I want the adventure. I want the adventure. But they won't go all the way in. They stay like Tarzan, stuck kind of like hanging on to what they knew and and going over here. And then they're like, they feel stuck, and it's like, well, you didn't keep your form, forward momentum by going all the way in and throwing yourself into it. And I know that you in your life, you've probably had some scenarios, seasons where you look back and you go, you know, it was when I went all in that all of a sudden the doors started to open. But when I was tiptoeing the line and just walking along, it, it, it didn't work out, right? That, it happens that way in marriages. You got to go all in. King Solomon at one point, he says, don't say why were the former days better than today, for it's not from wisdom that you ask this. And so many times we get hung up on why can't it be like it used to be? And God's saying, hey, I'm always working in a new way. And he says, you know, I don't, you don't put new wine into old wineskins because the old wineskins will crack. You have to be flexible. He says, you got to go all in to get the benefits. You've got to be flexible, and you just got to say, Lord, whatever you send my way, I'm going to do it. Because here's what's going to happen. In the next phase of the journey, in every hero's journey, the thing we love to read and the reason we love books is because the hero faces a series of challenges and difficult struggles. In fact, when they tell you in book writing, uh, they tell you in book writing that when you're writing fiction, make the hero have problems as soon as possible in the book. Because we read books because the hero is trying to overcome a problem. If you've ever read a, uh, you ever seen some of the, what's that movie with Jim Carrey where everything's perfect? Uh, There's a movie with Jim Carrey where just like, it's like this perfect world and what is it? And Show. It's, everything's perfect, and you're like, what's going to go wrong? It's like, and then you find out there's all this devious stuff going on behind the scenes. But we read books because we like to see challenges. We love challenges being overcome. Other people's challenges being overcome, right? But when the challenge is thrown on us, we go, oh, why is this happening to me? But we don't, what we don't realize is it's the struggle that is part of what God has put in our, in our path to make us stronger. There's this guy named Nick, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, <clears throat> and he wrote this book called Anti-Fragile. And he basically says there's three kinds of uh, systems in the world. There are fragile systems, and fragile systems break when they're exposed to stress. So like you get a little, like a, a vase, you know, you drop the vase, it breaks and shatters. Let it go, man, it's gone. Like, you're not going to repair it. What's that famous? If you drop your keys in a, in a river of molten lava, let them go, man, they're gone, right? It's a famous Jack Handy quote. But what'll happen, is, so the, the vase will break, right? And it's a fragile thing. But then he says, the oppo- we often think the opposite of fragile is something that's robust. So the second system is something that's robust. So like this stage is pretty robust. You can kick it and jump on it, but nothing happens to it. But he says, the opposite of fragile is not robust. Because fragile things break when they're exposed to them. Nothing happens to robust things when you break them. He says the opposite of fragile things are what he calls anti-fragile systems, which are things that actually gain strength through chaos, resistance, and disorder. And he says there are systems that have been put in place in the world that are anti-fragile. And you know what is the most anti-fragile thing in the world? You are. God created us, it says, through much suffering we enter the kingdom of God, it says in Acts. Acts. God has created you to, it's like that fasting thing I was talking about a minute ago. You are created to endure a certain amount of stress on your body, on your emotions. It's called, we call it U-stress in psychology. Eustress is the good stress that actually makes you tougher and stronger. But he says, this is the thing about anti-fragile systems. If you treat anti-fragile systems like they're fragile, they become fragile, which makes me think of our country today. How many people have we protected from all discomfort? I don't want to hear anything that makes me uncomfortable. And we turn them into little snowflakes. They turn into fragile people because we're made to be anti-fragile. We're made to take a couple hits, some knocks, and through it goes strong. If you've ever worked out, you know what that's like, right? Like when you work out, they say, what are they say? No pain, no gain. Like, and after you work out, if you, you feel pain, you're not like, oh, no, what's wrong? You're like, oh, it's working, <laughs> The exercise worked. We're made in exercise. You tear the muscle a little bit, you give it some time to heal. So that's the thing about anti-fragile systems is, they're not machines, right? You have to give them some time to recover and when they recover, they recover stronger than when they started. And we are anti-fragile, emotionally, physically. If you've ever broken a bone, you know if you give it enough time to set, the actual bone heals back stronger than it was before. And the same is true in our lives. God will often allow situations into our life. For this is where the Apostle Paul so he says, we rejoice in our suffering, for we know that suffering is doing something. It's producing endurance. Endurance produces character, and her character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through his Holy Spirit who's been given to us. He also says, so we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction, the struggle you're going through is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory, which is beyond all comparison. So he says, here's what we do. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, for what is seen is temporary. But what we fix our eyes on what is unseen, for what is unseen is eternal. And that's what he's talking about there. He's saying, all these struggles you're going through right now, In Ephesians, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Everything that God allows into your life, everything he's asked of you, is to make you stronger. He wants you to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. But the way we get to that strength is by being exposed to stress, by being exposed to challenges, and by letting, really just embracing the struggle, embracing the adventure or the challenges. I mean, think about what that would do. You know, I talked in in the first, uh, in the morning service about how, and Paul says, we rejoice in our suffering. and I'm like, I'm not quite there yet. I'm not at the point where I can rejoice in suffering. But can you imagine what a shift could happen in your mind if you started to realize that every struggle you're facing right now, if you'll lean into it and embrace the struggle as God preparing you for something, that through this, you're ultimately gonna come out on the other side stronger. What could that do for every challenge you're facing right now in your mentally for you? What kind of a perspective shift could it be that you're saying, I'm anti-fragile. God made me to grow stronger and stronger and stronger. And the way he does that is by putting me through challenges and resistance. And some of you are like, I'm done being strong. (laughs) Like the resistance, I can't take any more of this. But know this, God, everything he allows into your life, if you'll lean into his strength to get through it, he's actually making you stronger on the other side. And that strength isn't just for you. It says the meek will inherit the earth. Strength. Meekness is not weakness. Don't confuse those things. Meekness is strength under control. Meekness is having a sword and knowing how to use it, but knowing to keep it sheathed until the right time. That's what strength truly is. It's meekness. And and, and we've all had somebody that we've experienced their meekness. You all had that teacher that, you know, most teachers just like read the book and you'll figure it out. You've all had that teacher that took the time to sit down and explain it to you. And that you carry that person with you. For me, it was Miss Wrench in math. I was never good at math. But she, one year, the best math year I ever had was my sophomore year because Miss Wrench, she took the time to explain it to me. And I actually, for the first time, understood math my sophomore year of high school. And man, I will forever hold her dear because she used her strength to help me. And that's the goal of the strength that God is building in you. It's not for your own glory, it's so that you can take that strength and use it to help others. And then we come. After the series of challenges, every hero faces a series of challenges, and every hero comes to what we would ultimately call the dark cave. The dark cave is a moment where the hero has to face off with some things they'd rather not face off with. The John of the Cross called this the dark night of the soul. You've probably heard of that. Some call it a desert experience, a dry season. Every one of us in each circle of life, we come to this wall that we hit and we come to this dark cave and it's this moment where we have to go into the cave. Yeah, Joseph Campbell says it this way, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure that you seek. There comes a moment in the journey where we're facing challenges and we come to a decisive battle. Luke Skywalker has to face off with Darth Vader. Frodo has to go into Mount Doom and face, you know, facing off ultimately with Sauron. Uh, the Matrix, uh, Neo has to have the ultimate battle where he, he faces off. Uh, with all of the forces of the matrix. There comes a moment in every season where we have to face off with the darkness. And, and, and oftentimes what happens in this season, in this part of the season, is we feel abandoned by God. Uh, about two years ago, we had this massive winter storm blow through Texas, and it knocked out our power grid for the state for days. We didn't have power in our house for like six days. When it got down to about 40 degrees in our house, I was like, I need to see if I've got more clothing. <laughs> so I remember climbing, going into a closet we had, and I had to get a flashlight, and I looked in there, and I realized I had some really great jacket, cold weather gear. And I pulled out this North Face jacket, and I put it on. I was like, "Oh, I forgot about this jacket. This jacket is awesome." And I started thinking, as I was sitting there looking with the flashlight in the dark, about how often I've felt like that jacket in God's closet. And I'm guessing if you've walked with the Lord any amount of time, you've felt that way. It's like God clicks on the light, clicks on the light, and looks in there. He's like, "Oh." Well, you're still in there? <laughs> Sorry, bro, I forgot you were there. There's a moment I think we all come to in the season where we feel like maybe God's gotten really silent, where he's gotten really quiet. Maybe we even start to question, we're like, do I even have faith anymore? If you walk with the Lord long enough, you'll come to a moment like this. And you'll maybe even feel a little bit disappointed with God. There's a moment, uh, there's, a, there's a story where Teresa, uh, Teresa of Avila, she's complaining to the Lord. She says, God, why are you, why are you so silent? Why do you not talk to me? And he says, he says, she says, my daughter, this is the way I deal with everyone I love. And she says to him, well, no wonder you have so few friends, God. <laughs> and I think we can all relate to that. There comes a moment where God seems silent, and you're like, God, if this is the way you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few of them. But it's in those moments of silence that I think we're really growing, because I, there's, this, there's this moment of silence when we face these moments of God's silence and we face the test, A.W. Tozer said it this way. Can you pop up that Tozer quote? He says this. He says, it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. I think about Job. Job just got everything taken from him. In the middle of it, he's like calling out to God and there's no easy answers, right? And all of his friends are telling him, well, there must be sin in your life. And he's like, I don't think there's sin in my life. And another guy's like, they're giving him all these simple answers. And eventually, like halfway through the book, God shows up and he says, who dares give your Pat simple answers? He's like, let me ask you a few questions. And then he just answers, just asks a bunch of questions that nobody can answer. Where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did that? Where were you when I created the Leviathan? And at the end of it, Job says he repents in dust and ashes. And he says, man, surely I've spoken of things I did not understand. Chesterton talks about how God never answers Job's question, but he comforts him. And I think that's what happens in every one of our lives when we come to that dark season where it says, you know, God's in the process of making us into something, but it says it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he's hurt him deeply. God actually raises up storms of conflict in relationships at times in order to accomplish the deeper work in our character. We cannot love our enemies in our own strength. This is a graduate level grace. Are you willing to enter the school? Are you willing to take the test? If you pass, you can expect to be elevated to a new level in the kingdom. For he brings us through these tests as preparation for greater use in the kingdom. But you must pass the test first. And if you think back to school, when you were taking a test, your teacher would sit quietly in the corner And you'd be like, teacher, teacher, can you help me with this? And you Show me that you've internalized what you've learned. And the teacher's silent sitting in the corner. And I think that's exactly what it looks like sometimes in our lives. When we're calling out to God for answers in the hardest time in that dark cave, and you're just wondering, did God abandon me? Did he forget me in the closet? Did he forget he has a purpose for me? Like, what's going on? Did I do something wrong? And God is actually just sitting in the corner saying, I know you've got this. I know you've internalized what I've taught you this is the test. I'm not going to feed you the answers. Show me what you got. And I think it's actually a sign of his confidence in us. So if you're in a season right now, maybe part of that circle where God has just gotten really, really quiet, and you're praying, and you're doing everything you can, and maybe some people are saying, there must be some sin in your life that's blocking God. Maybe there is sin in your life blocking God, but oftentimes God is. If you've got your heart pure before the Lord. Oftentimes, God's just quiet because he's, as you mature in your walk with God, he's not going to give you turn-by-turn instructions. You don't need that anymore. You've grown into faith. Stick with the last thing he told you. Do what you know you're supposed to do. And as you do that, eventually, you're going to fight. You're going to face off with whatever it is. And listen, in the dark cave, here's what happens sometimes. Sometimes, the circumstances don't change. Sometimes you're not healed of the disease. Sometimes the cancer doesn't go away. But in the dark cave, it's in a moment where you say, you know what, I don't understand why God's doing this, but as Jesus said, Lord, if there's any other way to do this, I would really love this for you to do this crucifixion thing and save into the world another way. But not my will, but yours be done. Victory in the dark cave comes as surrender which is a weird thing, that's the kingdom upside down we live in. Oftentimes, nothing changes externally, but something changes in our hearts when we surrender saying, God, I don't know what you're up to, but I'm trusting that your plan for me is the plan that I would want for myself if I knew all the details. And you surrender. And look, nothing may have changed outside. The divorce still may go through. The cancer may still be there, the sickness may still be there, but as you've surrendered to him, you've said, God, I'm trusting that you are working all things together for good. And in that moment, you win the victory and you start to emerge from the cave. But it's a weird victory, right? It's a victory of surrender. And all of a sudden, you start to see God from a new way and, and, and maybe for the first time, you actually start to see who God really was. Because oftentimes, the God we've been worshiping isn't really God at all. It's the God we created in our mind and we've projected on him. Because the God that we actually serve is very mysterious. And in the dark cave, you, you, you learn to be more comfortable with unknowing than you are with knowing. And I think there comes a walk in our Christian life where we start to go, we just surrender to the mystery of who God is. And we say, God, you know, there's this story with, with Jacob. When Jacob, uh, the Jacob's Ladder, the Jacob's Ladder story, uh, this wasn't in my notes where I would have put the verse up there, but I just thought of this. With uh, Jacob... In his story with Jacob's ladder, he's, he's, he's fleeing from his brother and he's going to find a wife. And God appears to him and he says, Jacob, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you. And then Jacob decides, like God promises all this stuff. And then Jacob's like, sweet, let's make a deal. Here's the deal. If you'll take care of me and protect me, I'll obey you and I'll serve you and I'll even tithe. And I think, boy, not much has changed in 5,000 years How many of us, how often do we make deals with God? God, if you'll just, then I'll do this. And and, and I think early on in our walk, he's cool with that. He's like, all right, whatever. Because he did that with Jacob. He didn't rebuke Jacob for trying to make a deal with him. Jacob's like, if you'll do this and this and this, I'll tithe to you and all this. But then as you see later in Jacob's life, as he gets, he kind of meets his match with his uncle. His uncle takes advantage of him and burns him and, take, and like rips him off and then Jacob's fleeing and then he has another encounter with God and in that encounter with God, he ends up in a wrestling match with God and he says, God, bless me, bless me because Jacob's always looking for a blessing throughout his life and God, first of all, breaks his hip <laughs> and then he says to him, what's your name? And he says, well, my name's Jacob. He's like, no, your name is Israel because you've wrestled with God and now I can bless you. But the blessing came at the price of him walking with a limp for the rest of his life. And a lot of times in our lives, in the dark cave, we'll emerge with a wound, a limp, something on your permanent record that won't go away, right? Like, I have a failed business on my permanent record. I have a divorce on my permanent record. But it's very often through that limp that God says, now I can actually begin to show you who you really are because you're not leaning on your own strength anymore. I've destroyed your ability to lean on your own strength. And the blessing that he gives us is that we begin to walk with a limp. And so we emerge from the battle in the dark cave and we're like, oh, I'm half the person I used to be. And he's like, precisely, now I can use you because you're not counting on your own strength, your own knowledge, your own ability to pull it off. Now I want to show you truly who you are. I want to show you your new name. And that's where God changes Israel's name and he shows him, now you're going to be the father of a great and mighty nation. And I think that's an example for all of us. You know, early on in our walk, we start bargaining with God. God, if you'll do this, then I'll do this. If you'll do this, then I'll do this. And I think early in our walk, he's cool with that. He's like, all right, whatever. I'll give you the cool parking spot at the mall, right? But the longer you walk with him, he says, all right, I need you to realize we're not in this for a deal here because what I make with you is not a contract. What I make with you is a covenant. And the difference between a contract and a covenant is a contract is you do your part, I'll do my part. You don't do your part. I don't have to do my part. God doesn't make contracts. He makes covenants. And a covenant is different. He says, I'm making a covenant with you. You do your part. And even if you don't, you do your part. I'll do my part. And thank God he does his part even when we don't do our part. And as we walk with God longer and longer, we begin to see that it's not about making deals with God where he blesses us or doesn't bless us if we do the right things. It's about him and his faithfulness coming through for us, even when we aren't faithful. And oftentimes, he'll have to break us down a little bit to show us, hey, it's not about what you can do for me. It's about what I've already done for you and you can walk in that. And through my work in you, that's where the glory comes. I'm gonna show you that I love you in spite of everything that you've done. And sometimes we have to walk around for the rest of our life with a limp. But I'm convinced, and this is what we're gonna talk about on Wednesday night. I'm convinced that it's in that limp. It's in that battle, that struggle you faced, the hardest thing you faced, where God wants to show you the message that he has given you to share and the problem he has given you to solve. But it will come oftentimes when it feels like life is over. You go, this is the end. Surely I can't recover from this. I'm going to limp for the rest of my life because of this. And God's like, yeah, you are. And now I can really use you because you've been humbled and now you're ready to see that it's not about anything you bring to the table. It's about everything that he brings to the table and works through you in your life. And that's what he's been doing from the beginning. He's been preparing you in every season of life, in every circle, in every spiral. He's been preparing you for great works ahead. So that's what I want to cover this Wednesday when you guys come back. I would encourage you over the over this week some of these questions are super simple it takes five ten minutes to answer them but work your way through section uh, six the dark cave and uh, just spend a little time answering some of those questions i've got the tozer quote here and one of the questions is, what has been your experience with this reality in life that god can't use you greatly until he's wounded you a little bit like man that seems so mean of god yeah depends depends on what his goal is If his goal is to make you more into his image and leaning on him, then it's the best thing that could have ever happened to you that he allowed that thing into your life. And oftentimes, the things that seem the worst in the moment can actually turn out to be the best things in the long run. So that's my my encouragement for you guys. Work work your way through this, and on Wednesday night, we're going to talk, the last three sections is where it gets really good. It's where we talk about the thread of meaning that God has been weaving through your story. Victor frankly said, in some way, suffering ceases to be suffering the moment it finds meaning, such as the meaning of a sacrifice. And God, God's been preparing you for something. If you're still here, your greatest days are still ahead. I can guarantee you that. So we're gonna look at the mission that he's given you, the specific purpose. And my prayer is that, man, he will just blow your mind with a perspective on the work he's been doing throughout your life, even when you didn't realize, even when you were bumbling through the dark. He's, you're gonna see, oh my goodness, he was right there with me. The guide was right there with me, walking me through this, leading me to this future the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter and brighter and i'm just gonna i'm just praying that this week god will just begin to blow your mind with showing you i've been with you the whole time even when i was quiet even when you thought i'd forgotten you even when you thought you were abandoned i'm with you i've been with you and we got really great things ahead you guys receive that i'll let you out of here 15 minutes early how about that